Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Tom Hartman, Counterspin, Rachel Maddow, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Kirsten Powers online with us. First, before we get to her, I want to show you a small clip of, uh, for those of you who missed it in the last segment, of Kirsten uh, going after Ann Coulter last night on the Hannity and Combs program. The best foreign policy team in this country's and history. And what will you do? And all it's done, what Democrats will do, tonight. which is different, is engage with people. Michael, you'll engage people. with people. And keep people at the wow. table and have some dialogue. You'll engage you have to with do people. Diplomacy That's your first. answer? War should, be, war should be the last Amazing. resort. Conflict should be the last resort. The Bush policies we'll have talked to Osama bin Laden. The American people are speaking, and you don't want to listen. It's almost like you disagree with the American people. Let's let's talk about let's talk to Osama bin Laden. How about let's kill Osama bin Laden? How about let's find Osama bin Laden? You're talking about how you know Democrats don't want to do things on terrorism, which I actually will in a second go ahead and list the things they want to do. But how about the fact we invaded Iraq when you know over in Afghanistan everything was falling apart, and the fact that that we let Osama bin Laden get away, and the president said he doesn't even think about him, he doesn't even care about him. What about that? Um, I look forward to hearing that list. Okay, you will in a second. Uh, but as for catching Osama, um, it's it's irrelevant. Things are going swimmingly in Afghanistan. I mean, it's, no, it's not. like a fading movie. <laughs> swimmingly? Now. Things in um, Afghanistan are going horribly, but this is interesting. Osama bin Laden is irrelevant. Was, the person, the mastermind behind the al-Qaeda attacks on the United well, States is completely irrelevant. Is that what you're saying? Right, it was handed to Bill Clinton twice. Oh, it's Bill and Clinton fault. said no. Yeah, because I think uh, that no, actually it's irrelevant. Bush was president on okay, since 2001? I know you're trying to imitate Alan Combs, but yeah. at some point he does okay. let me answer. Let's go, um, Michael, why don't we talk about <laughs> yeah. the things that the, the, okay, the well, Democrats actually are doing about here. the fact that all of the uh, the, Democrat, the Republicans have voted against all the things okay, the Democrats have brought up, like increasing funding for border security, increasing funding uh, for, for uh, port security, increasing funding for airline security. No, I mean, seriously. isn't that true, Michael? Real, real homeland <laughs> security starts at home, yeah. and as long as this is the Republicans continue to cut the budget relative to homeland security, this, these kind of things are going to continue. You're exactly right with your question. That's why most of the, remember, all these things are getting cut and slashed to be able to pay for the Iraqi war. We're forgetting about the war on terror. And let's keep in mind, the war on terror is just not just a foreign war. We have homeland folks here that want to cause our government harm, too. We have to watch out for the Timothy McVeighs of the world, as well as folks in different parts of the world. So let's keep that in mind. This is not one kind of person we're fighting. Kirsten, welcome to the Young Turks. Hi. Hi. Hey there. First of all, uh, it must have been an interesting day for you. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Now, are you a little overwhelmed with the reaction that that uh, clip has gotten throughout the Internet and, and yeah. everywhere else? Yeah, surprising. I mean, I was just telling somebody, you know, the, sh- the show ends at 10, and so I went home, I talked to my family, pretty much that was it, you know, and um, they don't really know who Ann Coulter is, and they thought it was sort of a strange thing that happened, but I didn't really have any appreciation for it, and then I woke up this morning, and my, you know, BlackBerry was about to explode. <laughs> and Now, Kirsten, the thing is, her reaction was awful, and and, yeah. and it's funny how easily she broke when challenged just a little bit, you know? I don't want to take away from your challenge. I thought it was a great challenge to her, but it didn't take much for her to literally run away. Were you surprised at her reaction? Yeah, I was very surprised because I didn't think, and I have to say that, you know, when we sort of cut off of it, I thought, was I, did I not realize that I was being really mean or did I do something? You know, because I thought maybe I, maybe I did sort of lose my head and do something <laughs> to cause her to do that because I really didn't feel that I was saying anything that was, yeah, that that outrageous or even that difficult. It was pretty straightforward. And being mean, you mean... Listing off facts. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> you were very, very, very yeah. cruel to her. But I mean, I got to say, I mean, people's reaction today, I think it was very groundbreaking because it was the first time you see a host on television actually call a Republican pundit out. First time. Is that true? Yes. It's hard to believe. It I is. know. People keep saying that. I've but never I, seen well, anything like that. It was very Paul Hackett like. <laughs> um, you know, no, by the way, though, this is a pattern. I mean, yeah, it's twice wh- in a week. 
And not only is, is that happening, but remember, look, when Bob Novak was challenged on CNN right. by a, a CNN anchor, and not really even challenged, just to ask the question, these guys can't take it. He left a set. He threw oh, his right. mic down. That's right. And remember, what happened to us on the Young Turks? We had Dick Morris in the studio many years ago, two, three years ago now. Yeah. And when we challenged him on his uh, crazy philosophy, he walked out. Hmm. They, they just can't take it. It's And what's stunning about it, Kirsten, and I think why you've really struck a nerve, is because nobody's doing it on TV. It's, isn't that amazing to you that... that yeah, I mean, it is amazing, especially because I have to tell you, I don't feel like I did anything unusual. Right. You know, I, I didn't think, I didn't plan it. I didn't think, you know, it's not like I thought, oh, I'm on with Ann Coulter and I'm really going to go after her and get her. You know, I just thought, I'm going to talk, you know, I because just thought it's another part of the segment to get through. I didn't really... Um, I just didn't feel like I was saying anything that was really that unusual. And Kirsten, I, I don't think you you did, and that's the great. I mean, you're a hundred percent right. You just, but you did not back down. You were not inappropriate. You were not out of line, but you didn't back down. And one of the things that I I love best about it, and it may be a fairly small point, is that when she says, "I know you're trying to replace Alan Combs, but sometimes he lets me speak," you know. When uh, moments earlier, and then we played the full clip mm-hmm. on the last segment before we brought you on, Sean Hannity was oh, yeah. interviewing Michael Brown, and through the entire conversation, talked over. I right. mean, you let Ann Coulter speak twice as much as Sean Hannity let Michael Brown speak, and I'm probably being generous, in fact, there. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that, was, that was sort of incredible. And also, I felt that I was giving her a chance to respond, but she takes these really pregnant pauses. You know, yep. she makes a snotty comment, and then she doesn't say anything. And so it's, you know, that's kind of an opening. I mean, she's done a lot of television. I've done a lot of television. You know, when you do that, you've you got to keep the, the show moving. I'm going to naturally jump in. That's but, just what's going to no, happen. But Kirsten, I, I know what Jack's – let me just – but they don't jump in. For, I mean, for Ann Coulter has had those pregnant pauses, and there have been Democratic pundits, and Demo- the, there are no Democratic hosts, but um, they don't they don't jump in. They let her finish her diabolically evil, misdirected, lying, deceitful point, and then thank her for coming on the show. And it, but it's not even that. Kirsten, in that clip, what was struck me was she had no answer. And then once you when you came in to her... I mean, it was nine-month pregnant pause because it was uncomfortable because she had nothing to right. say. Uh, then she immediately said it like the usual thing that she's probably done a hundred times, which is, oh, you're interrupting me. I was right. about to say something great when you stepped on it, <laughs> even though I hadn't been saying anything for the last 15 seconds. The last yeah. thing well, that- I mean, there's also sort of the element of... Well, you know, ask her question, and her answer is you're trying to imitate Alan Combs. I mean, that's not an answer to my question. Right. You know, and exactly. So, it, so I'm not going to sit there and listen to that. If she wanted to say, even if it was something that I didn't agree with, she's free to say it. You know, it's just that that's just gratuitous, and that's just a waste of time. And why, why would I sit there and listen to it? it Absolutely. Make any sense. So as I'm saying, for me, it was just a very practical kind of. This is. There was no other way to respond in that situation. I didn't feel like I was doing anything revolutionary. (laughs) I I couldn't agree more. And as we said in the beginning, look, what you challenge her with is the most obvious fact in the world. We have not caught Osama bin Laden in in five years. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you would think that that would be something we'd be talking about on a regular basis on TV and radio. But I want to get. We would if there were a Democrat in office. Of course we would. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. If Al Gore was president, they they'd have a countdown. Oh, yeah. yeah. Of course. Of course. Of course. Right. Now, I, I want to get to the reaction inside Fox News Channel. And we're talking to Kirsten Powers. Mm-hmm. She's sitting in for Alan Combs all week and tonight as well. And was there a reaction after the show? Were the producers upset that they oh, lost? Oh, not at all. No. No. And, or I, were they upset at Coulter at all as for what no, for really pulling a childish know, move? They just were like, you know. Whatever. I mean, they really, it's funny, people have a, a little bit of, I think, a pretty big misunderstanding of what Fox is like. Um, I mean, I'm sitting at Fox right now, actually. Um, it's just, I mean, I just got done doing the John Gibson show where he, you know, we, you know, he brought me on to talk about it and what happened, you know, what happened. And it's not, it's not like anybody's mad. They, you know, I've never been told what to say. I've never been asked to tone it down. I've never been, if anything, I've been rewarded for being outspoken. Um, you know, they don't, they were perfectly happy, very happy, I was told, with my hosting, and I'm doing it again tonight, and it really wasn't, yeah, there, it, there was no... Yeah, I hear you, Kirsten. i, I got to be honest with you. Obviously, a, what a lot of people think is that they have Alan Combs on the program uh, so that he won't do uh, significant challenges. Uh, mm mm-hmm. 
you don't get that sense at all from uh, at Fox News Channel uh, in reaction to either this or in previous interactions with people? Well, I don't. Oh, I definitely, if I was just to look at my own experience, no. If anything, and in fact, it, the more outrageous I am, I mean, I'm not really outrageous. That's the thing. It's that I... I'm pretty. I'm usually pretty nice. I'm, I'm respectful. Um, you know, I don't get angry. Um, but you know, when I have, if anything, I, I get more of a positive feedback. You know, it's good television. They're not looking for, at least with me. I've never gotten the sense that they want me just to be, you know, not not contra, not you know confrontational or challenging. I do a regular segment on Sundays, um, which became a regular segment because I have this sort of combustible relationship with this uh, talk show host, it's friendly, but it's, you know, we really go at it. And, you know, they said it, saw it two times, and they loved it, and they turned it into a regular segment, and it's very combative. W- w- who's the host? Um, it's a guy named Joe Pagliarulo. He's out of um, Texas, and, um, you know, it's just it's just, just kind of one of these things where we just kind of push each other's buttons, and we really get going. But, you know, it's very friendly, but it's very, very combative. And I hear you. If it were um, a movie, you'd eventually get together with him. But, <laughs> Exactly. Okay, we're talking to Kirsten Powers. She is sitting in for Alan Combs this week. She's going to be doing it tonight on Fox News Channel, Hannity and Combs program as well. Kirsten, um, uh, one more quick follow-up question to that. Did Sean Hannity have a reaction um, while it was happening afterwards uh, or just after the program in its entirety? Uh, I mean, he was overall happy with, you know, at the end of the show, thought that I did a good job. I think that he probably wasn't super psyched about me, you know, not letting Ann talk. He must just be stunned he has a co-host. Well, I don't know. You know, I, I have to tell you, I really like Sean. You know, I know people don't like to hear that. But, you know, he's been great to me and, in fact, is probably, not probably, is the reason that I even have a job here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was somebody that pretty in the beginning sort of said, you know, I think you're good. I like having you on. Would you want to come work here? Um, you know, then Alan sort of said the same thing. And it was they really were the two that were very instrumental. So, you know, I, I don't. You know, I can't, I can't speak to what goes on between Alan and, and Sean. I, I like Alan a lot. I've been on his radio show. He's very funny and very smart. Um, you know, I think people are frustrated sometimes with his style. Um, well, and they, they, I mean, I hear you. They've clearly, I mean, they've, obviously, they've, we're not naive. They've set up a dynamic there. It works for Hannity. It may work for Combs, too. It, it does not work for what I would call well, a very balanced conversation. It also, it also, from a television programming standpoint, uh, you know, I don't know how watchable a show is. If every night you have two hosts being incredibly combative, well, I think that's. I think look, it's a successful show. They found yeah. something that works for them. They're comfortable with it. I wonder whether they would be comfortable with it if you were the host uh, full time. I'm dubious, but uh, mainly though, I hope what you're doing, and I'm sure you have. I hope you've spoken often today uh, with your agent because this sort of <laughs> I don't have an agent. Well, get one. Uh, I can give you the name of mine, and, and I suspect you, I suspect there are a lot of people like to sign you today. <laughs> Kirsten, on that note, let me tell you something uh, very funny as well. I checked Wikipedia for, uh, you know, your bio. Uh-huh. And, it's you know, definitely true if it's on Wikipedia. <laughs> right. No, and what was amazing, I checked it today, and it says, you know, you worked for the Clinton administration, Democratic strategist, columnist, political commentator, blogger, etc. And the last paragraph of your bio now says... Powers made a name for herself. She challenged <laughs> Ann Coulter on the Bush administration's war on so terror when she appeared on Hannity and Combs in late August 2006. There's, there's actually an update now. It also says Powers was delightful when appearing on the Young Turks. Oh, nice. Shortly after. It's really yeah. weird. Yeah. So, uh, well, I don't know. It's funny, you know. It definitely is. Kirsten, look, we'd love to track the story as it goes and hopefully, um, you know, uh, that there won't be any more developments on Fox, that they won't be unhappy with it. They'll be very happy with it. And, uh, and we thank you for coming on. And, and Kirsten, we're going to say something we've never said on this show now as, we, as we let you. Be sure to watch Hannity and Combs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, okay. and God bless you for taking on Ann Coulter. We, okay, I think everybody you. appreciates that. Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Powers, on my hunches, you'll be hearing uh, much more from her. Thanks, Kirsten. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. She says, there's the one I love the most. But time's not far behind. She never lets me in. Only tells me where she's been. When she's had too much to drink.
Back when I was a teenager, there were a bunch of us who lived in a house in East Lansing, Michigan, that was, uh, I believe, owned by, I, you know, I, I don't know, I'd have to go back and maybe rented by, but in any, any case, it was this guy who was uh, uh, became a, a dear friend. As uh, Over the years, one of my very best friends uh, later worked with us in a company that we started, the Woodley Herber Company. Uh, we called him Java Man. And, and he ran the house. There was a refrigerator in the living room, you know, with a beer keg in it, with a tap through the door. And it was, I remember when the movie Animal House came out, he came out. Louise and I were living out in Alchemist, and he came out. Hey, they made a movie about us. We've got to go see this thing. So anyhow, just a little background. Uh, he also uh, got a degree with honors at Michigan State University in, in um, as I recall, it was math. And uh, was it, just a, a really smart guy. And a good guy, and he sent me a note, and and he and he has this annual job. has this annual party every year in East Lansing, and you know, Louise and I try and get back and and see the old crowd. You know, it's the old, uh, basically the MSU East Lansing ex hippies. I don't know what else to put it. And he sent me this note. He says, uh, hi, Tom. Well, the new flight rules really suck. Apparently, uh, Java and his wife Sue just took a flight. He says. Sue cannot have makeup, and most important, her water bottle. Me, no cans of beer to sip on in security or on the plane. Checking wine bottles is risky the way they throw luggage. All this got real, got me really pissed and thinking, it all boils down to fear and control. If the government can keep us scared, they can control us much better. The, ulti- the airport check-in is the ultimate example. We're like little sheep, but we, but we do what we're told to do. If we complain, they ultimately could refuse us access to the plane. We're losing our freedoms in the name of freedom. How absolutely absurd. But what can we do? I'm thinking of putting FDR's quote on a lawn sign. And then, and then he, he puts in FDR's quote. And here, here is the actual original. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. So he says, so, but what can we do? I'm thinking of putting FDR's quote on a, long, on a lawn sign. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. He says, but even then, I, I suspect the, uh, the, the dumb beep uh, won't understand. He says, I suppose I could move to Canada, but that's a lot of hassle. Hawaii's another option. Uh, Michigan is one of the most fascist states, but it's so cheap to live here. I'm just in a deep funk over this. Flying used to be fun. Now it's a major pain in the butt. So how do we break this cycle of fear? Good question, Java. In my opinion, the way to to break the cycle of fear is to stop being afraid and stop buying into the fear, is to speak out and and point out that fear is being used as a tool, as a political tool in the United States. Fear is being used. Keith Olbermann actually has been outing this. Last night he did it again on his countdown program. All the coincidences. Every time John Kerry got some traction, when John Kerry announced that John Edwards was his running mate, he got a big bump in the polls. Bush immediately issues a terror alert. Kerry gets a, uh, announces that Edwards is going to, you know, officially at the at the convention. Big bump. Immediately thereafter, terror alert. Every time bad news came out for George W. Bush, uh, you know, Rove is might be indicted. Terror alert. Every time it was either bad news for Bush or good news for Kerry in the election, Bush would the Bush administration would issue terror alerts, and Tom Ridge who was the head of the Department of Homeland Security after he retired or quit or was forced out, I mean, we don't really know, went around on national television on a number of programs and said that these terror alerts that were issued were issued at the request of the White House, that he didn't think that many of them should have been issued. Terror is being used to advance a political agenda in the United States. That's called terrorism. People who do that are called terrorists, and therefore I think that we could correctly say that the terrorists who are most responsible right now for terrorizing the American people and using that as a weapon, as a tool, are the, are the Bush administration, are in the White House. And the way to combat it is to, is to honestly and frankly and candidly point it out is to say, we're running concentration camps down in Cuba. Is that the kind of country we want to be? We just completed the Halliburton, just finished building number camp number six, which has a death chamber in it. We are not only building concentration camps, we've now built a, a death camp. 
down in Guantanamo for the execution of people that we decide that we're going to execute in our kangaroo courts that the, that the Supreme Court has all but called unconstitutional. I mean, this is, this is just wrong. And, and uh, you know, yeah, if you want to get on an airplane, you got to do the dance, and I do the dance. I do it regularly. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have airport security. I'm, uh, my, my, my gripe, and I'm sure yours, Java, as well, is not with the, the good folks at TSA. These are, by and large, government employees who are, you know, decent people just doing their job. And, and generally doing a reasonably good job, but... You know, they're not the ones who are making the policy. They're not the ones who are deciding that we're not going to, for example, check the cargo in the belly of the plane. But we're going to make all the people go through an incredible song and dance so they feel like something's being done. So it looks like Bush is doing something about security. Oh, we're, 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 my job is to protect the American people. I'm sorry, George W. Bush. Your job is to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States. That's what you swore to when you swore an oath of office. And you are not doing that. A judge in Detroit just ruled that you are not doing that. And it's just absolutely wrong that we don't point out that George W. Bush is not only not doing his job as president of the United States, but that he is in the, in the process of trying to hang on to power, he and his party, that they are using the tactics of terrorizing the American people on a repeated and regular basis wrongly. Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you I walked out this morning and I wrote down this song I just can't remember who to send it to I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again The August 10th announcement of an alleged terrorist plot to blow up airplanes flying out of London was big news, but reporting of that story took a back seat quickly to a discussion of the impact on U.S. politics. And that discussion had a very familiar feel. As a headline in the next day's New York Times put it, Arrests bolster GOP bid to claim security as issue. The process was virtually frictionless. Republicans immediately declared this was good news for them, and that assumption then guided the coverage. In many of the stories, a Newsweek poll showing Bush getting higher marks for his handling of terrorism was the only indication that the public was going along for the ride. But other polls weren't as clear. Some showed Bush getting a small bounce, while others had the Republican Party continuing to lose ground on the issue of terrorism. But the pundits didn't wait to size up the political repercussions. The day the news broke, the Washington Post's Jeff Birnbaum declared on Fox News that Bush, quote, will get a lot of political credit for working so closely with the British, close quote. MSNBC reporter David Schuster did his best to back the White House line on August 14th, noting what he saw as the significance of Bush and Cheney appearing together in public. Quote, it underscores the White House decision to focus on the GOP signature issue, fighting terrorism, close quote. Schuster later stated that, quote, Americans tend to rally around the president and his party during a time of crisis, close quote. That this is such a time was simply a given. Media in other countries, as well as the alternative press here, have featured critical challenges to the White House's description of the events and their importance. But for many U.S. reporters, the only real question is just how much Bush and the GOP stand to benefit. You put yourself in stupid places. Yes, I think you know it. Here's my favorite part of the New York Times article. 
This is the article where they're talking about how... You already had a favorite part. That's true. This is my second favorite part. Thank you, Ben Makes. We care about the truth on this program, being accurate and honest. Um, this is the article where they're talking about how some senior administration officials and congressional uh, Republicans are pissed that we're not hyping the Iran threat enough. The intelligence agencies aren't hyping it enough. Yeah. They're saying, oh, these intelligence guys, <laughs> these are the same guys who told us Iraq wasn't that much of a threat. Now they're telling us Iran is no threat. We can't have that. We need it hyped up a lot more than that. So second favorite paragraph from the story. The consensus of the intelligence agencies is that Iran is still years away from building a nuclear weapon. Such an assessment angers some in Washington. <laughs> okay, but just pause and think about that for a second. Why would it anger people? Shouldn't we be like, oh, that's terrific. We have some time. Thank goodness we have time to work something out short of, 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 of war that will kill tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands if it gets out of control. Such an assessment that they're years away. I mean, at the very least, we should be thinking, well, at least we can do something about that threat. We have more time to do something, anything about the threat. But such an assessment angers some in Washington because they don't want the threat to be far away. They want the threat to be pretend to, to be right now so they could have war right now because they're dying for war. But, of course, ironically, they're not dying for it. They're sending your sons and daughters to die for it. Not one of these people will go, of course. And, of course, throughout this thing, the, you know, uh, 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 General Wayne Downing Jr., retired former commander of Special Operations Command, White House counterterrorism advisor during President uh, Bush's first term uh, in regards to the anger that the people in the, in, in the, the sort of the, neo, the neo-clowns in Congress and the Bush sympathizers in Congress, and I don't mean everybody in Congress, I mean specifically the people who want to do the Bush administration's bidding and the administration themselves, angry because we're not drawing enough of a connection, the intelligence communities aren't between uh, Israel and, uh, between, excuse me, between Iran and Hezbollah, right? So this guy, a guy who was Bush's counterterrorism advisor uh, during his first term, says, does Iran profit from all that Hezbollah does? Yes. Uh, is Iran pulling the strings? The guys I'm talking to say no. <laughs> and they're like, no. The answer is yes. The answer has to be yes. So we're not even sure that Iran is actually telling Hezbollah what to do. So their two main arguments are Iran is backing Hezbollah. Hezbollah is fighting Israel. Israel equals the United States. So we must strike Iran. Now, if you don't think that's a tenuous enough connection, the second part of that is it turns out that's not really true. <laughs> you know, it turns out, look, is Iran giving the weapons to Hezbollah? It appears yes, partly maybe. But the intelligence people are saying... It, it is not a remote control thing. They're not. Yeah. Iran did not tell Hezbollah to attack. Hezbollah is its own organization. Yeah, that, that's. By the way, that's fairly obvious. Um, and you know, Nasrallah is a powerful leader uh, all by himself. It doesn't mean there's no connections. Where this is not like Al Qaeda and Saddam, where there are no connections. There are Iran Hezbollah connections. There's no question. Yes. The question is, and what should be analyzed is, what are those connections? Um, There's so many great things in this article that should make you uh, angry and scared. Just another reminder here. Many senior Bush administration officials have long been dismissive of the work of the intelligence agencies. That's true because they've been dismissive because the intelligence agencies were not telling them exactly what they wanted to hear regarding Iraq. Uh, Because as we now know, many in the intelligence community were saying that there was reason to disbelieve that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And the great, great irony there is... Then the Bush administration blamed the failure of the Iraq war on the intelligence guys they were upset with because the intelligence guys were telling them, no, we don't have clear evidence of a WMD program, and we have no link between al-Qaeda and Iraq. And because they were upset with that, shortly after the September 11th attacks, the Pentagon set up an office led by by Douglas Fife. We know that was the Office of Special Plans uh, that sifted through raw intelligence to look for a link between terrorist networks and governments like Iraq's. There were no links, but that didn't stop us from going to war uh, with Iraq. Uh, then this quote, which is just uh, delightful. The consensus of the intelligence agencies is that Iran is still years away from building a nuclear weapon. As Jenk said, such a consensus angers some in Washington who say that it ignores the prospect that Iran could be aided by current nuclear powers like North Korea. When, quote, when the intelligence community says Iran is five to ten years away from a nuclear weapon, I ask if North Korea were to ship them a nuke tomorrow, how close would they be then? That's Newt Gingrich running for president, almost certainly in 2008, former Speaker of the House of Representatives, and a, if not a neocon, then a neocon ally in every no, way, shape, a or, neocon. way, shape, or form. So 
That tells me two things. When he says, when the intelligence community says Iran is five to ten years away from nuclear up, and I ask if North Korea were to ship them a nuke tomorrow, how close would they be then? That's Newt Gingrich saying the intelligence community is right. They are five to ten years away because I have to get them that nuclear weapon sooner. They can't build it themselves in five to ten years, so they have to get it from North Korea. Two questions real quick about that for, I think, that are relevant. First, if we bomb North Korea, I mean, if we bomb Iran, they can still buy the weapon from North Korea. That's point one. <laughs> That's a great point. Point two, if we bomb Iran, they're more likely to buy the weapon from North Korea. That is another excellent point. The I only have... way around it is we bomb Iran so badly that we change, that we kill their own, their leaders and only their leaders and, and American sympathizers come in to take over in Iran, which is inconceivable. That's a total fairy tale. Now, point number three, and my favorite point on this. Then if North Korea has the weapons, why aren't we concerned about them and not Iran? And I get, get that logic. No, wait, wait, wait. Just pause for a second and get that logic. We're, Newt Gingrich is saying we have to attack Iran because they might buy weapons from North Korea. Then why don't we attack North Korea and get they're, rid of the middlemen? They're in the axis of evil, too. Today's Rachel Maddow Show front page is about President Bush's state of mind uh, in his press conference yesterday. Um, on yesterday's show, you might remember me expressing some concern about the president's state of mind. Uh, I played a couple of times this clip from his Friday news conference at Camp David. We, uh, I made my position clear about this war on terror. I, uh, and by the way, the enemy made their position clear Yet again, when they, when, when, um, when we were able to stop them. Stop them. See, I posted a link to the video of that little, I think, troubling brain derailment. Uh, in case you missed it, it's at MaddoOnline.com. Uh, th- then yesterday, not long after we finished the show, after I spent all this time in the show talking about that, uh, the man had a 56-minute news conference in which he did absolutely nothing to make me feel better about how he is personally, mentally doing, like just in terms of his stability. Listen to his response to this one reporter yesterday. Mr. President, I'd like to go back to Iraq. You have continually cited the elections, the new government, as progress in Iraq, and yet the violence has gotten worse in certain areas. You have to go to Baghdad again. Is it not time for a new strategy? And if not, why not? Uh, You know, Martha, you've covered the Pentagon. You know that the Pentagon is constantly adjusting tactics because they have the flexibility from the White House to do so. But the strategy is to help the Iraqi people achieve their objectives and their dreams, which is a democratic society. That's the strategy. The tactics. Now, either you say, yes, it's important we stay there and get it done, or we leave. We're not leaving so long as I'm the president. That would be a huge mistake. Doesn't it seem like he's getting kind of really worked up here? We're not leaving. We're not leaving. We said we're not leaving ever so long as I'm the president. We are not leaving. We leave before the mission is done. The terrorists will follow us here. The terrorists will follow us here. And we, we've, we've heard this as an explanation before. This is the new rationale, right? And you can imagine what I think about the president saying, you know, officially now there's no plans in any time in the next two and a half years he's in office to bring troops home. But, you know, it's, it is more worrying to me, though, other than the content of what he said, to hear his tone of voice, the kind of state of mind he's in for making that kind of incredible decision. Listen to this exchange. The terrorists attacked us and killed 3,000 of our citizens before we started the freedom agenda in the Middle East. They were. What did Iraq have to do with what? The attack on the World Trade Center. Nothing, except for it's part of, and nobody's ever suggested in this administration that Saddam Hussein ordered the attack. Iraq was a uh, Iraq. The, the the lesson of September 11th is take threats before they fully materialize. Ken. 
Nobody's ever suggested that the attacks of September the 11th uh, were ordered by Iraq. Of course, you suggested that the attacks of September 11th had something to do with Iraq, George. Of course, you did. And we can talk more about that substance later, and we will. But honestly, what I'm really the most concerned right now is that, I mean, I think he doesn't sound stable. I think he doesn't actually sound like he's making reasonable, considered decisions in a cool, calm, and collected manner. And even if you don't like the guy, even if you hate his policies, you want to feel like he's sane. And I don't feel very confident in that. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you're my butterfly, sugar, baby. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you're my butterfly, sugar, baby. Such a sexy, sexy, pretty little thing. This paper bitch, you got me sprung with your tongue ring. And I ain't gonna lie, cause your loving gets me high. So to keep you by my side, there's nothing that I won't try. Butterflies in her eyes and her looks to kill. Time is passing, I'm asking, could this be real? Cause I can't sleep, I can't hold still. The only thing I really know is she got sex appeal. I can feel, too much is never enough. You always gotta lift me up when these times get rough. I was lost, now I'm found, ever since you've been around. You're the woman that I want, so you I'm putting it down. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady. You're my butterfly, sugar, baby. Come, my lady, you're my pretty baby. You'll make your legs shake, you'll make me go crazy. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady. You're my butterfly, sugar, baby. Come, my lady, you're my pretty baby. I'll make your legs shake, you make me go crazy. Are, are serial killers made or born? How, do, how does this come about? And, and what's the story with these these very strange folks let's say philip carlo the author of the night stalker new york times best-selling author the Iceman, his new book confessions of a mafia contract killer philip philip carlo welcome to the program thank you tom and i know what i know because i know what i know <laughs> that's that's great it's, you're an unusual <laughs> man said, actually. philip carlo it's i the just the back cover of the book where you where you oh, quote chilling, chilling man chilling yeah, where you're, you're quoting uh, uh, Richard, Richard uh, talking to his daughter right. and telling her that the day may come when he would have to kill her mother, and if he did, he would have to kill her and her sister as well because he couldn't leave any witnesses. Right. You say that this was his way of expressing love? Yes. This is a very, very amazing uh, story, uh, and it has so much to do with what you were just talking about, i.e., the how is a killer made? How does a person become capable of remorseless murder and, and murder in a, in a way where it's planned, it's it's thought of, it's this there's careful, meticulous stalking involved, and also spontaneous murder, murder just because somebody perhaps looked at you the wrong way, murder because you were driving along and the hitchhiker gave you the finger and you got off at the next exit, went several miles out of your way, came back just to shoot that person in the chest only because he gave you the finger. How does a person these, like that... Are these things that Richard Kalinske oh, did? Oh, yes, they are. They're things that he Kuklinski. actually did. Uh, and I, I'm talking about them because it, the law, the, to answer your question, he was so much part and parcel of murder being the answer to all problems, murder being the answer to the question, that if one day he killed his wife accidentally, he would kill his children so there couldn't be any witnesses, though, strangely, bizarrely, he loved his children passionately. He loved his wife passionately, but he had problems inside his head that were never resolved, and those problems I would like to discuss with you right now. So this is a guy who was responsible for over 200 murders. Yes. He one time claimed a link to the uh, the Hoffa murder. In fact. Yes. And, uh, I, you know, the, the classic notion that we have of of sociopaths and serial killers right. that is is the the one that's put forward in the in the movies of you know with uh, uh, <laughs> you know what's his name the the the, uh, the the serial killer who was you know having people for lunch kind of thing you know the, the, uh, uh, Buffalo Bill uh, yeah yeah uh, just, <laughs> but they are emotionless you know that they are that they are cold well in fact your, your title of your book the Iceman yeah. that they are cold and without emotion and that they and in fact the class classical definition of a sociopath is somebody who views everybody around them right. in the world as an object and only themselves as the only real person in the world. Right. And yet your characterization of Richard Kuklinski, of Richard in your book, The Iceman, is a man who 
has no problem with killing others and yet is capable of having connections with people. What am I missing here? Well, the, 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 his childhood, the, the, the building blocks, what happened to him between the ages of, let's say, three to nine, what, uh, the building block ages. In his case, his father, Stanley Kuklinski, was, uh, a, a, a mean drunk. Uh, and he was drunk a lot. Uh, when Richard was five, he had an older brother named Florian who was seven, and this man, uh, used to wrap a garrison belt around his fist and use like a club, and he punched him in the body, he punched him in the head, he often knocked him out, and one day he hit Florian in the head too hard and he killed him. Uh, mm. The mom and dad conspired to hide the murder. Uh, they did hide the murder. They told the police and family that the boy fell down the stairs. Uh, the boy was laid out in the Kuklinski living room. They were poor working people. Richard, uh, the last time he saw his brother, he was in a coffin, and Richard was silently begging for him to get out of the coffin to wake up, to wake up. He never saw death before, and uh, for a while, the father let up on Richard, but the beating started again. Richard, as a 67-year-old man, told me that he was so frightened of his father, uh, and he didn't say it like he was offering this for, as an excuse. We were just talking about his childhood. He said, I was so frightened about my fa- of my father when I used to just hear his voice. I would urinate in my pants. Uh, so by the time Richard was 10, he had a host of personality problems, uh, the least of which was uh, inferiority complexes um, and uh, a lot of anger at the world. Uh, he first started venting his anger on animals, uh, beat to death stray dogs, set them on fire, would throw cats down the incinerator and then start a fire and watch them try to come up the hole. Uh, and and from the a neighborhood bully when he was 14, just kept abusing Richard, and one day, one night, Richard decided to strike back, and he, he assaulted the guy with a bat, and he accidentally killed him, cleverly hid the body. At first, he felt real bad about it, and then he felt something else entirely. He felt godlike, he says. He felt omnipotent, he says, and uh, so he started carrying a hunting knife and weapons and using them if somebody just looked at him or cockeyed. Looking for opportunities to recapture that feeling of power. Now, exactly. what, what if you had somebody who in their childhood had a history of... You know, uh, killing animals, uh, you know, even if it's like, you know, sticking firecrackers and frogs, just delighting on that. And then in their teenage years, they have a history of of injuring other people, like branding people, for example, with a hot branding iron, you know, their peers. And then as an adult, uh, they were able to make life and death decisions for over 100 people, send over 100 people to their death, and was gleeful about it, actually bragged about it. Um, Would you be concerned about a person with a personality like that? Oh, absolutely. Well, what I just described to you is George W. Bush. Who are you talking about? George W. Bush. I agree, 100%. I think he's a psychopath. Wow. Yeah, wow. totally. Yeah. I think he should be arrested. Uh, for, 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 I, mean, I can't believe you said that. Right on, man. I mean, he's now responsible for the death of over 100,000 people Absolutely. in Iraq. But he's very, and he's still, very and he's still, still you know, stay the course and all that nonsense. I yeah. think he has problems. I think I, who knows what happened to him in his childhood, but I, he was definitely uh, he's definitely spoiled. He's petulant. He, he, I think, was an alcoholic and drug user for the most of his adult life. He started, uh, he, he found God in that, and he threw away the bottle. But those type of people often are very uh, unmalleable. Uh, they won't change their uh, opinion. They surround themselves with people, yes, people, and that's exactly what he has. I think he's having an affair with Condi Rice. She's grossly incompetent. She has absolutely no right to be there. Don't get me started. Yeah, no, well, she referred to him as her husband once, you know, in a slip. We're yeah. talking with Philip Carlo, by the way. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Iceman, Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer, one of the leading experts on serial killers in the United States. Uh, his previous book, The Night Stalker. Um, Philip, we, we just have about a minute and a half here left to wrap this up, or maybe two minutes. Uh, um, the, the, what, what should society do with, when we identify people like this who, who uh, kill without... Well, the first thing we need to do is try to dissect how they got that way. and whatever So we can prevent it from happening in the future. Whatever lessons we've got to try to get that to the school system, to the teachers, to the principal, look for the warning signs and perhaps uh, address it early on rather than let it grow and grow and grow and become a malignant cancer. Yeah.
Yeah. Um, George W. Bush, when he when he laughed to the Time Magazine reporter right, <laughs> about uh, Carla Faye Tucker, he, right. you recall that, and he and he made fun of her begging her for her life, and right. she had converted to Christianity, become a born again Christian. Right. Was was that when when the light bulb went off in your head about him? Major so Oh no! From the beginning, I was talking to a friend just this morning, and we were saying when he first there were thoughts about uh, scuttlebutt about him running for president. Everyone was saying nice suit but empty, and how true that turned out to be. Do you remember that yeah. phrase, nice oh, suit yeah. but empty? Well, yeah. he, he really has a problem, but he's uh, he. It's he, not empty though. It's it's dangerous. Oh, it's, it, well, it was empty back then. Now it's very dangerous because he's making all these kinds of decisions. Every I just I I hate him. And I think he's still so leading the country in the wrong way. And you know, a lot of the money that was allocated to the school systems, the domestic school systems, was taken away. Just the kind of things we're talking about, money that would have helped identify problem children, help them get, yeah. them, them, uh, get uh, counselors, guidance, uh, was, was stolen away because of his ridiculous tax cuts during a war. Right, and, and also his No Child Left Behind, which uh, helps his brother, who's in the educational testing business, but really nobody else. It's, a, it's an amazing story. But the, the book, The Iceman, Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer, this is a fascinating piece of work. Philip Carlo, thanks, author Carl. of The Night Star. Thank Star. you, Carl. Philip, thanks for being with us. Doing you out there without care. Yeah, I was out of touch. But it wasn't because I didn't know enough. I just knew too much. administration officials now trying to claim that the vice president was unaware the British terror arrests were imminent when on Wednesday of last week he suggested that Senator Joe Lieberman's defeat in the Connecticut primary would encourage terrorists, even though by then the president had already known for about 72 hours of the arrests. The notoriously press-shy Mr. Cheney interrupting his summer vacation to tell reporters in a conference call that voters who supported Ned Lamont's anti-war candidacy might, quote, embolden the al-Qaeda types who want to break the will of the American people in terms of our ability to stay in the fight and complete the task. This is from the same man who had also said the insurgency in Iraq was in its last throes. The Bush administration's former Homeland Security Secretary taking issue with the former colleague's most recent remark, Tom Ridge telling Newsweek magazine, that may be the way the vice president sees it, but I don't see it that way, and I don't think most Americans see it that way. Time now to call in our own Dana Milbank, also, of course, the national political reporter of the Washington Post. Dana, good evening. Good evening, Keith. None of us can say for certain why the Bush administration would have pressured British authorities to move early on the terror arrest. But giving them the benefit of the doubt, even doing that, did not the pounding by the vice president, by Ken Melman, by others still leave the administration wide open for doubt and even suspicion about the timing of all this? Well, Keith, that's just the kind of question that emboldens the al-Qaeda types. Thank you very much. Um, uh, well, it's not really even a matter of suspicion. I mean, uh, Karl Rove came out uh, earlier this year and said, look, this is what uh, our fall campaign is going to be about. It's about uh, stirring up terrorism and, and saying we can protect you better than the other guy. I wouldn't get too bogged down in the timing issue because, if anything, the Bush administration politically would have wanted to wait till September October when everybody was paying attention. But it's, it's not even an open secret. It's completely out in the open that, uh, that terrorism is politicized routinely over and over again. One apparent strategy for uh, Democrats, at least, and critics to respond to Mr. Cheney's remarks is to just dismiss them and dismiss him as irrelevant. Senator Clinton told a, a radio station in New York she does not take anything he says seriously anymore. Is there a point, is it conceivable, there's a point at which that becomes the conventional wisdom about the vice president? Could he ever become a true liability to the administration's base? 
I'm not sure about him becoming a liability to the base, but uh, I think we have probably reached a point where uh, people are discounting his remarks. You mentioned the last throws remarks. I mean, he had had implicated Iraq and Saddam Hussein in the 9-11 attacks. We know that not to be true. He said Iraq had reconstituted nuclear weapons. We know that not to be true. So he's known as being a bit out there, uh, a bit uh, more fast and loose with the truth uh, than others have been. Uh, That doesn't mean he's a liability. I mean, any more than he was uh, before. He's rather low in the polls. But I I get the feeling that each time they go to the well with this, there's a little bit less uh, impact in the public, a little less uh, uh, fright that is actually drawn out of it. Truth aside, appropriateness aside, look at it as a, as a political gamesmanship here. Did, did the Bush administration succeed in undercutting any damage that would have been done by the defeat of Joe Lieberman in the Connecticut primary last week? It seems as if we all heard and read more last week about, about Dick Cheney's comments than we did about what Ned Lamont's victory would portend for the Republican Party come November. I think they did succeed, and I'm not sure that even without all the developments in Britain uh, and what Cheney had said that it would have made uh, that much of a difference, Lieberman, uh, his defeat may actually ultimately help the Republicans anyway because it shows a very divided uh, Democratic Party. But uh, certainly uh, this allowed uh, to blunt any sort of an anti-war question. I think the administration was quite clever in uh, turning the British arrest to their advantage here. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this does allow the Republicans to paint the Democrats as very divided. The poll numbers for the president, Newsweek poll says obviously he's now in the positive numbers on Homeland Security. Then there's a CBS News poll, another overall job performance poll. He's still significantly below below 40 in these in these polls. Would being viewed as strong on terror and security really matter to the president and the Republicans who are running in the fall if he were seen as being weak on absolutely everything else? Which is more or less what we're looking at right now. But I think the White House has, is breathing a certain uh, sigh of relief when you do see those uh, terrorism numbers, those homeland security numbers bumping up. This has really been the source of all of Bush's strength. Everything else has followed from it. Now, we're seeing Bush's numbers at 38 percent overall. It's still very low, only up a few points uh, in the Newsweek poll. But... Uh, If your homeland security numbers, if your terrorism numbers are moving up, presumably the others will follow, uh, and they're certainly hoping they can bump it up a a good bit more in the 90 days or whatever we have until the election. So I would take that as quite a positive sign uh, that this is having a beneficial effect for Republicans. Dana Milbank of The Washington Post and MSNBC. As always, Dana, great thanks. Thanks, Keith. Seven, I think, thousand young men and women in World War II. The Nazis had submarines 10 miles off the coast of New York. Maybe it was 20 miles, just off the coast of New York. We were literally firebombed by the Japanese in the Pacific Northwest. They, they dropped firebombs from balloons during World War II. The Great Depression was going full bore. We were just starting to climb out of it. And we had a president who understood that be afraid, be very afraid, (laughs) is no way to govern. Or just, you know, stroll down memory lane for the day here. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Franklin Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, you know, Bush would say the only thing we have to fear is losing an election. 
thanks for listening, everybody. So I've already had plenty of responses to yesterday's question about how you listen to podcasts. I, I said, how do you listen to my show? I changed my mind. I don't care. I, talk about any show you like, you know, mine, mine or, or otherwise. It, it's really more about the medium than about the particular show. Um, but, but keep them coming by all means. They're all great. They're all totally useful. Even if you don't think you have an interesting story, if the only reason you listen to podcasts is because you have three boring jobs that you work and you don't do anything and, and you think that your story is so boring that I'm not even reading your email. Believe me, I am. And it's all exactly what I'm looking for. But some of these stories that I've been getting have been reminiscent of the last time I asked you guys a question, which if you recall was, why do you live? What do you live for? What keeps you going? You know, what's, what's your driving force in life? And the overwhelming response was to pursue joy and beauty and happiness and so on. And every, you know, soft, liberal, you know, pansy-ass notion you can imagine. That's exactly what everybody said was their goal in life, was to pursue those things. And that's exactly, you know, even though it's really nothing to do with what I asked, that's still the vibe I'm getting from you guys, which I love because, well, I mean, maybe maybe my story kind of rubbed off on you because that's kind of what my story was all about but you get the point anyways it's it's ingrained in us it's where we're just easygoing people but um there was one story that i thought was particularly interesting it was actually the very first one i got um, probably because of the time difference from chris in japan and it's just i mean it's a totally simple story there's nothing particularly special about it but and he just happens to be listening to my show while he uh, does this. But he, uh, you know, goes to work and comes home and, and he decided to uh, exercise regularly, you know, a while ago. He decided to start exercising. So, you know, just going for a walk. That's his kind of routine. But his routine has turned into walking from his house down to the seafront and he watches, you know, like, watches evening descend, watches the sun go down, you know, his, his whole walk, you know, it takes like an hour, hour and ten minutes, and he goes out, and he watches nightfall over the sea in Japan while listening to podcasts. It just so happens he often listens to mine, but that's not the point at all. It's that, I mean, if that's not a new media revolution, I don't know what the hell is. And I thought that was fantastic. It's just, I mean, it's beautiful. And that's exactly as beautiful as the, you know, the guy who listens to podcasts while he, uh, you know, does housework at home while his kids are sleeping. And, you know, it, it's this ability to tailor our lives the way we want them to be tailored and do the things we want to do when we want to do them is the magic of you know podcasting and all of the media the way it's being restructured and I think that this can only be a good thing and can only lead to you know a happier and more educated public you know depending on what kind of podcast you listen to or whatever the medium is you you choose to pursue of course you're all listening to a podcast right now but so much of this stuff you know i wouldn't listen to half the stuff i listen to if i didn't get to listen to it exactly when i wanted to listen to it but i do get to and it keeps me informed and i'm a better person for it and it's, I imagine, the exact same for everybody else, and everybody has their own story. Oh, it's just a magical time we're living in. That's all I'm saying. So, anyways, that's, uh, that's my story for the day, and uh, 
so keep those stories coming they're they're all they're all great and and worthy and worthwhile and uh endlessly interesting so th thank you uh, for everyone who's already sent them in thank you anyone who is going to send one in i'll uh, i'll thank you in advance so the easy way to do that is to go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com go to the bottom there's a link that says email me you can send it right there or email direct at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com i'll talk to you guys again tomorrow Now black and white Cause you took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like It's just a fond farewell to a friend Terrorism is the calculated use of violence or threat of violence to attain goals that are political, religious, or ideological in nature. It follows that the United States is a leading terror state. As the Bush regime continues its war on democracy, log on to thewarondemocracy.com to find out what you can do to fight back. The war on democracy.